Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Jason Pack and this is Disorder a podcast where we try to put our finger on the salient dynamics in our mad, 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 mad world. And today we have a Thanksgiving Day bonus episode for you outside of our usual schedule. There's so much information out there about what's happening in Israel-Palestine, but yet really so little information about what the big picture geostrategic context of this conflict is. Not only how we got to here, but like, What are the ramifications that this is having elsewhere? And how does this feed into larger dynamics like with China or with NATO? So to do that really big picture contextualization, I'm very thankful to be joined by Alessandro Politi. Alessandro is the director of the NATO Defense College Foundation based in Rome. The NDCF is an impactful NGO which is actually directly referenced in an annex to the NATO Charter, the only NGO mentioned directly in an annex to the NATO Charter. And that is one of the many reasons that I'm proud to be the only senior analyst there. So in this episode, my colleague Alessandro and I are going to discuss what role does NATO have in the Middle East? What can Europe do in the Israel-Hamas war that, say, America or the Arab states can't do? Alessandro has also recently come back from Taiwan. We're going to hear how that was. He's going to share with us his thoughts about how the Ukraine and Gaza war might act as a detonator for larger U.S. and China tensions. So this may seem very quaint to non-American listeners, but it really makes sense to me to say what I'm thankful for on this Thanksgiving episode. Firstly, with the wars going on in Israel and Gaza and in Ukraine, we should all be thankful for whatever stability and comfort we have in our lives because they may seem disordered, but they are so, so, so much less disordered than what other people are experiencing in this mad, 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 mad world. And I am personally really thankful for the opportunity to bring together my 20 plus years of experiences in the Middle East and try to do something to contribute. You know, I I do have this sense of powerlessness and voicelessness because like, what can I do with the hostages being kept in Gaza and the bombing of innocent civilians and in hospitals and elsewhere in Gaza, but I am thankful to have a voice and you listeners and this program help to make that voice more impactful. So I just want to share with you how thankful I really am and how much we're already succeeding. We have become one of the top 15 podcasts in the United Kingdom. Nothing can make an American more chuffed than that. So That's what I'm going to be thankful for at my festivities this evening. And of course, just how humbled I am relative to 
events in Gaza and Ukraine, those who are fighting on the front lines to keep us all safe, please keep it up. And those families who've suffered, you are in our hearts and prayers. Alessandro, bello parlare con te. Really great to have you on Disorder. To start, your personal story has actually been very impactful on your career trajectory. Could you tell listeners a little bit about your upbringing and your family? I was born uh, in Germany. My mother was German. My father was Italian. I'm a son of two Axis parents. My father was a duly member of the National uh, Fascist Party. My mother was a Catholic Boy Scout enrolled in the Bund Deutsche Mädel, so the feminine equivalent of the Hitler Jugend. But her father, after one year, took her out. So I got a very, very close uh, feeling, not so much explained, uh, that that generation didn't talk very much about the war, about the Holocaust, about the hard edge of European history and wars. So I decided to study wars. I tried very much to understand, you know, politics, wars, strategies, global issues and regional issues. And then I came to a conclusion that I share with many Israeli generals and directors of intelligence. You have really to work for peace. We're talking in early November 2023, and the Israel-Hamas war is boiling. What role do you think Europe and NATO should be playing in trying to bring this conflict to a peaceful conclusion? We should start reasoning more like Palestinians and Israelis instead of reasoning like Europeans about the issue. So the first thing we have to help, and Italy can do it, is to find every possible occasion to de-escalate the tension. So it's very difficult to act on Tel Aviv right now for obvious reasons. But, you know, politics is not uh, for now immediately. It's across time. The problem is how do you manage two nations on the same territory? Netanyahu has its own political merits and its own weak spots. And he thought that he could, you know, make uh, like Romans, which is an old recipe, divide et impera, divide and conquer, playing Hamas against the Palestinian Authority. Well, this has been exposed uh, very clearly by the Israeli press in a very intense way. So I think that the solutions that have been adopted until now don't work. And we must find, you know, a way where people can finally live decently, free from fear, in peace. This needs compromise. But I have a a light of hope. If we as, you know, international community, and I use this word very sparingly, were able to get out from a long war like the two world wars, in some you know, reasonably decent way, there is hope also for this conflict. What about the role of NATO? Can NATO have a role to play? Or is this just not a NATO concern? NATO is very interested in the conflict because it is within uh, its area. Uh, it's not within the borders of the alliance. But Israel is a partner of NATO. Jordan is a partner of NATO, and so on. 
Egypt is a part of NATO. So in this sense, it is really concerned. But generally, NATO doesn't get directly into these things, as it didn't go directly when the Turks and the Russians were squarely, you know, facing themselves in Syria. I look at NATO as the coordinator in chief. NATO was ideally suited to doing behind the scenes coordination and information sharing. And really, NATO is the best forum to get allies on the same page. But it doesn't always work, and it certainly doesn't work in situations like this current Israel-Hamas war. And we talk about orderers and disorderers on this podcast. So could you tell us the kind of country or kind of leader who, when a NATO Mediterranean policy initiative reaches out and says, hey, can we coordinate with you about this? They say no. What's that kind of person? What are their motivations? The mindset is very simple and that's very provincial. Oh, that is not in my immediate area. That's down there. Let them sort it out. Sorry, security is indivisible. Since we are all allies and connected through a global superpower, yes, we should care what happens, you know, in Cyprus or in Gaza. We should, because it's not something nice. It's not just diplomatic nicety. It's a shared interest that is very concrete. You know, when you have the price of oil exploding and Mrs. Putin flaunting the sanctions because, ah, <laughs> you pay more even if I do smuggle it, that's serious. They should be concerned about that. But uh, it seems in many cases, decision makers have the faintest idea about what is happening outside their decision room. It's something that is, strikes me a lot. You're in a unique position, having worked for years on NATO and the Mediterranean and the Balkans and seeing how developments in one part of the world or with one set of countries affect others. I may be blissfully ignorant of how developments with China, for example, are affecting the way in which the Hamas-Israel war is playing out, but I am aware that Iran might be emboldened because they think even if there's further Western sanctions because we gave arms to Hamas, we don't care because we can sell our oil to China or we can get Belt and Road Initiative funding from China. Could you kind of more sketch how these things are interrelated? The first thing that really makes us so connected, the world, uh, is globalization itself. For Israel, you know, things are Israel and Palestine are very sentiment-charged. It's not useful, but it happens. The fact that the U.S. is perceived as less present in the area, surely less present in the Gulf than in the Levant, and as you have seen, Biden has gone to Israel for very good reasons, among which electoral ones, you know, I, I have no illusions about that gives uh, local powers, no matter if they are benign or malign, the already long-standing idea that they have to do by themselves. And they do. Turkey is one case, uh, the Emirates, Saudi Arabia. We got a very interesting conference in, in Rome on the 6th of October on NATO as a foundation. And we got a prominent Saudi scholar saying, look, we don't want to change the U.S. for something else. But if you Europeans want to be serious with us, well, talk is not enough. Guarantees are important. That's a very important point, which is that the EU 
has long talked about having an independent deterrence capacity, an independent and unified military, but it hasn't done it. It's relied on the American defense umbrella. But do you see that Saudi scholar touching on something? Is there, because of a fear of a second Trump term or other developments, going to be a more integrated, more holistic European defense approach? As a European, I've seen, uh, first of all, Europe started vaguely working on defense in 1994. Now, I think Europeans start to understand, no matter what the U.S. say, that they must be more concerned about their conventional deterrence vis-a-vis Russia. You can't just have uh, a hodgepodge uh, conventional array against a Russia that in 10 years could recover from uh, the beating it got in Ukraine. If people dream about a, a European army, they just have to look at the Ukrainian army today. It is a logistic mess. You can't simply go being interoperable. You must be standardized. I don't know that our listeners will understand the difference between interoperable and standardized. Could you quickly explain that? Well, interoperable means that at least on certain essential things, your communication and your weapon systems are compatible. If I have a howitzer, it must have the same caliber and should fire different ammunitions from different countries. I have five types of tanks. Yes, they fire the same ammunition, but there are five logistic lines for that tank. It's a matter of survival. You raised three or four critical points here. One is the question of international coordination. We are always talking about the fact that our complex globalized world with multidimensional interlinking challenges, such as climate, defense, artificial intelligence, requires more international coordination. And yet we find ourselves at a moment where there is less international coordination than there had been previously. Now let's jump back to Israel-Palestine and Saudi and Iran. America has been the indispensable nation in many arenas, but in no arena more so than in security guarantees for Israel. But might it be nice if the Europeans as an entity could counterbalance America either by offering certain security guarantees to different Palestinians, certain humanitarian commitments, or security relationships with Sunni Gulf nations against Iran, which are not tied to the overarching American connection to Israel. Tell us about that. Is that possible that a bribe that we could have to resolve this conflict is European nations giving security guarantees to say Saudi in exchange for the Saudis helping Israel with the Palestinians? One of the lessons I must say, which struck me regarding the Saudi-Iranian agreement was that in the end, local actors jumped the gun and took matters in their own hands. This is a crucial point. One of the characteristics of the enduring disorder is that because there's no top table hegemon ordering all theaters, medium powers like Turkey and Iran are emboldened and alternative powers like China and Russia, and in this case, China, can do something like make a Saudi-Iran detente, which no one thought was possible. They think really that Israel Palestinians need to take matters in their own hand. It is 
very difficult. They have to change a lot of ideas and prejudices one another. But if they don't do it, it's very difficult from outside to do anything. Yes, of course, you can give support in emergency. That's good. But it doesn't solve the problem. This commission, this European commission, tried to be a geopolitical commission. But you know, the, the European area of responsibility is something that, you know, logistically goes from the Arctic to the equator uh, for a good half of the Indian Ocean and the other half in the Atlantic Ocean, together with the U.S., of course. So Israel falls fully in that area of responsibility. But this is a political matter. It's not an operational matter. I think that Europe should have a distinct interest in taking these responsibilities more of them, knowing that in the end, you know, if we are democracies, well, democracies need to have also the power to be credible when they do diplomacy in order to transmit somehow their values in a more decent and civilized, uh, you know, international affairs environment. But if we believe in these values, well, we must give us the means to make them more credible, not just on the economic side, but also on the, you know, more sharp end of negotiations. After the break, we're going to hear about if these conflicts going on and raging in the world right now are actually just smaller symptoms of a top table battle which is brewing between the West and China. So, rather than the world facing one major conflict, we're now in a world where one, two, three, four, five major conflicts are going on. But you've made the interesting point to me that maybe all of these are risks of a larger top table conflict between the West and China. Could you explain ways in which the Ukraine-Russia war or developments in Israel or civil wars in Yemen and Syria might lead into a larger conflict with China? I would say that these conflicts and other conflicts could be, um, because it's not a given, a detonator. But the detonator is not the bomb. <laughs> Surely the powder or the powder keg is, you know, in the Pacific. It is in the dynamic between China and the U.S., but it is also in the end of an old world order. We have grown up during the Cold War, which I generally tend to call a third world war, because it was called for us as the Northern Hemisphere. <laughs> really not. Already across the Mediterranean, it was very hot. During that period, we externalized war like a toxic waste. And of course, you know, there are things that change. I understand very well, you know, the U.S. leadership, uh, at least rhetorically, when they say, you know, we are still indispensable, we must have the dominance, we must be the number ones. I understand that. You know, it's part of life. At the same time, part of life is that other powers emerge. And before it was easy, before you could do a war, it could be horrible, but you came out. Today, you have nuclear weapons. <laughs> this is something that uh, uh, not only complicates the calculus, but really makes the thing much more dangerous. We, we endured already two world wars. You were just recently in Taiwan, 
it's a place that I'd love to go. You know, I'm interested in my dumplings and my spicy Chinese food. I'm also very interested in my superconductor supply chains. Tell us about what it was like being there in Taiwan and what did you come to understand about Taiwanese democracy and how it functions from being there? The first thing that struck me a lot was the capability of Taiwanese generations to overcome a military dictatorial regime. Martial law was not abolished until 1986. The Taiwanese democracy, a full democracy, is very young. It remembered me very much uh, West Berlin during the Cold War, in a different way, of course. You know, it's not just a half-city enclosed by the German Democratic Republic. But there is a sort of feeling. The sense of being under siege. Uh, the sense that you are uh, under the shadow of a possible volcano, yes. For sure. We can never fully empathize with the sense of fear and struggle and persecution that someone in a place like Taiwan or Israel or Gaza might feel. How do we find shared interests as a world where we can begin to use the fact that, say, the Chinese have a lot of issues with pollution, particularly in megacities like Shanghai, to form a constructive dialogue? You know, there is an article I published on the website of the foundation, the very short telegram concerning precisely, you know, in this case, the U.S.-China relationship. Huh? There are more common interests between these two countries than meets the eye. 100% agreed. Now, of course, uh, you know, a normal Chinese uh, politician would tell to me, why should I engage with a rebel province? And I would say, look, you want to achieve this reunification. Evidently, your government has had a problem in Hong Kong. Do you really think that you can be attractive if you continue that way? One nation, two systems was a brilliant formula. Unfortunately, it didn't live long enough to convince the Taiwanese. So probably cooperating on things, even, you know, in an informal way, there is today, I think, 5-7% to be generous of people in Taiwan that would really want a reunification with uh, Beijing. The rest of the people don't want. So probably you have to try another approach. Let's try to order the disorder together, Alessandro. You've touched on so many interesting points, ways in which conflicts in other parts of the world affect the Taiwan-China struggle, and ways in which Europe needs to be more united and coordinate better together to help America and to help a Western security approach to complicated issues like Ukraine and Israel-Palestine. If you were briefing an Italian policymaker, a NATO policymaker, what would you tell them? What are the low-hanging fruits of things that could be done differently, ways we could work with adversaries to help make a less dangerous world? I would say political dialogue at different levels allows to, first of all, avoid misunderstandings allows to ease uh, tensions and to diffuse uh, even uh, propaganda campaigns. Dialogue is important, you know, face-to-face -face is important, even to manage, uh, you know, an ongoing conflict. The other thing which is overarching, and I think here uh, there is one global leader who got it, in my view, right, 
a leader morally responsible for one billion and a half people like uh, Pope Francis. You need to look at the world together. So the world cannot sustain uh, consumerist societies. We have to find another way in order not to burn out our resources. This is, of course, very hard <laughs> because it puts into question our Western way of life. And the third thing is, if I might say, to rebuild the West, because today there is no West. There are Wests. There is something much more important than NATO, and it is a transatlantic relationship, which is made of people, culture, debate, struggle for freedom within our societies, will to change, will to risk, will to be altruistic. Despite all cynicism we have, we stand together after two world wars. And I think we should devote some energy instead of finger pointing, uh, instead of looking systematically, you know, at our failures and flaws. This, I think, is important. Alessandro, we really look forward to having you back on the podcast because you have so much in your life story to share. I just wish that more people could learn from you so we would have less conflicts in this world and more people would be fighting for peace rather than for the eradication of their enemies, sadly. Indeed. Well, that's it for this week. If you too want to help order the disorder, you can tap follow right now so you'll be notified whenever an episode drops, especially for when we have these bonus episodes like this every once in a while, you know? If you didn't follow us, you'd likely miss it. You can find us on social media by searching Disorder Show and read more about today's topic by visiting our show notes. Our producer is George McDonough. Our executive producer is Neil Fern. As always, thanks for listening, and I hope you have an orderly week. Thank you.